Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Royal Blue Podcast, an extra one for you this week. I'm Phil Kirkbride, and today I'm joined by Adam Jones, but also Dave Prentice. Nothing unusual there. You will hear us, of course, this weekend on the usual Royal Blue Podcast. But the thing is dedicated to those which you've heard us discuss on the podcast uh, before, and I'm sure many of you reading this, uh, listen to this, sorry, are uh, reading if have not read the uh, books now online, of course, as well for you to order and get delivered. It is ter- terrific, um, and I do genuinely urge anybody who was looking for a new book to go out and get this. Uh, and I'm pleased that we can afford the time to, to dedicate a pod to it and the things that come around it and questions. And 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 Preno, look, and I know you, you you've touched on this in the pods that we've done and, and, and various other things you've done to help promote the book. And it's been something that was a, um, a long time making, shall we say? <laughs> I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Um, I started knocking together some of the little anecdotes and the little stories a long, long time ago because the stories are so good. And the circumstances in work first came to the post in echo allowed you to, to witness some of these instances. You know, we had a very, very privileged existence back then. And so as a result, some of the stories are, the kind of thing that you probably would never encounter nowadays uh, or you wouldn't be allowed to encounter and so i just didn't want them to you know sort of disappear you know they're all good talking to people over a pint about them and people laughing and saying oh you've got to put that in a book you've got to put that in a book yeah. so i started knocking ideas together um little anecdotes so I, you know so the detail wouldn't be forgotten in the midst of time and then uh one day i just sat down and i worked out i had about ten thousand words of uh, separate stories, you know, so all knocked together. And I had always planned to put them together in book one day. And that just get, kept on getting put off and put off. We never had enough time. Uh, you know, so you two guys know, you know, so how much, much demands are placed upon us. It was always in the background, you know, something I always meant to do. And I just thought, God, I'm not getting any younger, you know. If I, if I don't get around to doing this now, you know, I'll never get around to doing it. And then, obviously, we all know what happened at the start of the mm. year. I'd already committed, actually, to doing this. I spoke to guys at the Reach Publishers uh, just before Christmas and uh, asked if they'd be interested. And uh, they were very enthusiastic about it, very kind, and said that if you can commit to doing it, uh, we'd like to get it in the uh, before Christmas. You, it's like, so, okay, well, what does that entail? Well, it entails you delivering a further 75,000 words to us by July. I thought, wow. I said, well, I don't know if I can physically do that. I said, I'll try. I said, but, you know, we'll give it a go and I'll let you know probably March, April, uh, you know, whether I can physically commit to it. Well, obviously the world went into lockdown. I was saving myself an hour and a half commute time every day. So 
I got really stuck into it and I'd finished by June. So yeah, you know, I literally raced through it, helped by the fact that so many of the stories are fresh in my mind. I didn't have to do a lot of research to try and like sort of dig a lot of it out. You know, so it's all there in, in the grey matter. No, it's ten thousand words I already had lined up. So well, and I think it's just from a personal perspective of the book, I've been lucky enough to have had you regale with me with a number of these tales over over the years, and yet rereading them still they still felt felt new and they still felt as interesting as when you first told me well that's it some of them are absolutely unbelievable you think what did that really happen you know duncan ferguson did a, a center forward the most charismatic and you know so loved figure at the football club was he actually sold behind the manager's back and uh, and and he was and you know that, that's a story which i've related in the uh, in part of the serialization which we carried on the site because some of the backstories to it i mean okay everyone knows that duncan was sold behind the manager's back uh, i mean peter johnson actually spanish chairman as a result of that but the minutiae that actually has never been published before and that was, you know, Walter and Archie were going down the staircase of Goodison with their respective wives as Duncan was coming back up. And, um, you know, Duncan actually stopping them and saying, he says, well, I've been sold, haven't I? And Walter says, sorry, have you signed anything? Don't sign anything, you know. So you need to go and talk about it. So Walter, Archie, Janice and uh, Ethel, their respective wives, sat in the little referee's room next to the changing room of Goodison's and discussed what they were going to do. Now, I'll moderate my language here because uh, some of the language is a little bit fruity. But, um, you know, Walter was saying, what are we going to do? What can we do about this? You know, so we can't have our best players sort of behind our back. And there was a pause in the conversation during which Janice Knox, Archie's wife, piped up and said, well, Archie, we've been sat in the lounge upstairs and if what we're hearing is true, it sounds like £8 million is a hell of a good deal for Duncan Ferguson. <laughs> Archie turns and goes... Off. Yeah. <laughs> so Rich, you know, so Ethel then turns around and goes, Archie, you can't talk to Janice like that. Anyway, the meeting <laughs> deteriorated and um, you know they, they both went home. So the following day I had to go down and see Walter. And then that was an experience in us because um I think Tony Dory was the uh, the acting getter to that day, and Tony was a guy who had a background in business journalism. And he obviously believed that no credible business organization could actually operate in such a way. Not helped by the fact that uh, Peter Johnson's uh, then partner, Lorraine Rogers, was ringing the news desk and telling them that um, Walter did know all about it. And Peter was nobly taking all the flack for the good of the football club. So I was in Walter this and I've never seen an you know, combust so much. Walter went absolutely berserk. You're sitting there, son. You're not leaving this office till you hear that chairman tell you exactly what went on. And predictably, Peter had gone round. Peter wasn't answering the phone. And he was just like absolutely incandescent with anger. So in the end, I said, look, Walter, I believe you. I believe you. I'll convince them back in the office. So, I mean, lots and lots of things like born the fact that we were allowed to go down there every single day and see the manager every single day i mean it was a, a routine that began with my predecessor ken rogers with howard kendall's era and so yeah you'd go down you'd have a cup of tea and as a result you forge your relationship with the manager you'd become close to him you, he was taking decisions that he took and he would he would trust you with a couple of little nuggets that maybe you wouldn't have trusted other people with and so it just helped in a situation like that you know you're able to see the real person behind you know so the stories that were there and like I say, privileged position. I mean, that, that that's a, a whatever era, you know, star player signed behind manager's back is a great story. But I can, I mean, what would, what would that be, that story be like now? You know, in modern 24 hours. I think it's sold, Edge. Locking or something like that. It's carnage, wouldn't it? Oh, yeah, very much so. Well, it was, they were, they were mad times. And I do have a, a great deal of sympathy 
for Peter Johnson in one respect. I mean, we, we were quite friendly at a time, uh, born of the fact that, like I say, his partner, Lorraine, Lorraine Rogers, was an old school friend of mine, which was bizarre, you know, so how we actually stumbled across that. Um, but we, we were quite near, so quite close for a time as a result of that. But then, obviously, I had to, you know, honestly and candidly report what I believed was going on at the football club. And so, well, I slaughtered him. I think mm. uh, one of the headlines on the uh, one of the pieces I wrote was "blundering, inept, and crass." That's the very for John Tenyon as a chairman. So I can understand why he fell out with me. But equally, I understand what he was trying to do. It was just unsustainable. It was the Leeds United model. It was the model that nearly got Leeds, you know, bankrupt. Um, he basically spitting the money that money they can have try and get Everton into the Champions League in the belief that that would then generate further funds, uh, you know, to helpfully, hopefully keep them successful. And obviously it's, it's, it's a model that doesn't work. You know, it's, a, it's never worked, you know, as Leeds United found out. So, you know, we had to accurately reflect that. But he meant well, Peter. He just had a very, very misguided way of going about it, unfortunately. Mm. We're not, you know, expect anybody to get the violin out for us, you know, that we have to work hard in this job. But, <laughs> you know... Obviously, for somebody in my position, you know, and and, and hearing hearing those stories previously, and then and reading them in the book, do you ever can you can you give the listeners um, because you've you've seen the two extremes of of, of local football journalism in, in terms yeah. of access? Can you give the, give the listeners an idea because it's reflected really well in your book? I feel in terms of the difference difference between when you were on the beat, you know, every day like me and now yeah. to how to how it is. You know, now in in the modern the modern landscape of, of dealing well, with football clubs, yeah, it's absolutely chalk and cheese, massively different. I think in the intro to the book, I was fortunate enough to enter journalism at a time when football clubs were just starting to raise the drawbridge, and um, I think it's quite you know it works quite well that metaphor because that's literally what happened. And it's not football clubs deliberately trying to obstruct, but football has become a huge sport now um, you know so the, the media at large is so obsessed with it that there are so many avenues now trying to grab a slice of it mm. not least the football clubs own channels you know so incredibly controlling and you know i started a job in like the late 80s early 90s my competitors you know with national newspapers who were you know fierce rivals uh, club call and um, you know, so a couple of radiations that was. As a result, the managers that wanted to see the you know get their messages out there and wanted to try and influence uh, other football clubs and influence supporters were able to use local as me to do that. So I was invited down, like I say, on a daily basis. You could then forge relationships with the manager and with players. I mean, we went down in the morning, chatted to the manager, went back at lunchtime, and the club left it up to us to ask players if they wanted to be interviewed. Uh, Andre Konchalskis wasn't particularly happy. Andy Hinchcliffe, who was amazing, you know, so I love Andy, but he mm. was always very, very, I don't know, suspicious of doing media interviews and preferred not to, but plenty of people would. Uh, but, you know, we, we were allowed to ask those questions ourselves. But as the demands increased uh, on football clubs and as obviously Sky TV wanted their slice, as the internet was invented and websites started proliferating, you know, football clubs themselves, it became impossible uh, for the managers to devote that amount of time to every single element of the media that wanted to speak to them. And so as a result, the local papers started to get less and less, you know, sort of time and less and less access. Now, I know that we're still treated differently uh, to, you know, sort of other elements of the media. Um, I know we do get you know reasonable access on occasions, but we've got to we've got to request it. You know, we've got to 
you know, it's a big plea to go along. And, you know, so and ask people individuals, whereas in the 90s especially, it was just a given. You would just go down there and you'd be granted an audience. And I think it's 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 quite obvious in the book when you look at the relationships I had with me up to David Moyes' ear and then the relationships I had with the managers after that. Up to David Moyes, you had every manager's, you know, so a home number, you know, his mobile number, you could ring him at any time and you could bounce questions off them. And normally they dance quite honestly. And subsequently from the point, when the managers that have worked over the last few years, uh, you know, uh, Mark, uh, Ronald Koeman, uh, Sam Allardyce, not once did I have their personal number, not once did I feel like I had a special relationship with uh, you kept at arm's length. And the only time we had audiences is normally when we've done something wrong and yourself and myself <laughs> yeah. were invited along to sit in front of Roberto Martinez and defend ourselves and explain ourselves as to why we weren't being supportive enough. And then uh, had to do something similar with Sam Allardyce as well. And so, yeah, it was a very, very different mindset. And I understand why it changed. I understand of necessity why it needs to be that way. But does it need to be that way? Because I also reference in the book Wayne Rooney. And Wayne Rooney actually said this about two years ago, two years ago, when he was England captain. And he said one of the first things he said to Gareth Southgate, he goes, I want a uh, greater rapport with the media. I want the media to travel with us and I want them to stay in the same hotels as us because I want them to mix with the players. I want it to be a greater level of trust between players and the media. And that's healthy. You know, so if you do that, the reporters know they can't betray that trust. Otherwise, the players won't talk to them. They won't get anything from them. Whereas, you know, if you're willing to trust where you're likely to get more out. I thought we're being quite, uh, quite mature and quite cute in doing that. And you know, whether it worked, I don't know. I don't know quite what the level of access is like now with uh, the national guys that travel around with England. But it's clearly a mindset that does still exist, can still, still work. You know, if, you know, if footballers are prepared to allow it to work. Mm, yeah, and, and slightly off off tangent, I, I did a piece last weekend actually on on Pickford and why I, I felt that yeah. and understood what made him tick and, and understood how he was feeling about the mistakes and and all that sort of thing. Ultimately, it's what he does on the field that shapes his Everton future. But I always feel if 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 through the media, through us, whoever that that person can um, sort of portray them real their real selves and express that to the supporters. There's a greater understanding and there's a greater um, degree of support, probably. And, and, and when things are going wrong, there's probably a, a more of an understanding. Look, we know what Jordan's about. He'll be hurting. Mm. He'll do it right. All that sort of thing, you know. 100%. Sorry, yeah. Adam. Go on. No, but I was just going to say, I feel like that's certainly the case, especially with current players that we've got now. I don't know what it, for you guys, I often get you know, family members asking me about certain players in the squad that I might have interviewed a few weeks ago and they go, oh, what was he like? You know, I, I think he seems like this, this and this. And I, I can all go, oh, he's had loads of time for me, et cetera, et cetera. And yeah, I do agree that, you know, if the players were given maybe perhaps a bit more time to, with the media to be able to express these kinds of things, you know, what what the attitude was like a few years ago. Obviously, it's it's something that I've never been able to experience in this job, which are kind of, a kind of a... I feel a bit bad about to be honest. It is. It's regretful because, you know, you actually get to know the person you know, in front of the uh, the image that's constructed you know, so by the media. I mean, we see Jordan Pickford when he's made a mistake, you know, laughing to himself, you know, so on the goal line and he gets absolute pelters for it. But if you spoke to him about it, you can understand that and reflect it in the pieces that you write. You're not, you know, sort of telling any tales. You're not, you know, sort of betraying any trust. 
you're just giving an insight into why somebody behaves the way they do. That allows fans to then share in that. Just understand the situation. By putting barriers up and by putting, you know, sort of screens up, players or people, you know, the fans are led to come to their own conclusions and often they're, they're mistaken. And so, yeah, you know, having this access to it and allowing fans to share in, you know, sort of that access helps everybody, I think. The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Of course, as, as is reflected in the book, and you know, and and, and your, you know, you you probably refer to some of the former Everton players per an hour as friends more than you know, as yeah. you know, rather than having you know acquaintances or professional colleagues in that respect. Um, I just wondered, Pren, just I mean, before we get onto what's in the book, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, is it was the stuff that that had to be left out because maybe. There was, wasn't wasn't the room, or it was just we uh, we would just get you know we probably need another another two chapters to really do justice. Or so, so yeah, there's there's a, there's a few stories and that that I would be betraying the trust of people um, in the if I was to go into more detail than I have done, which uh, which I wouldn't do. Uh, there is one story in there about um, a, a former Everton player that came to me and talked about writing his autobiography, and uh, when I was talking to him. It then became apparent that there were much greater problems you know, in his life than getting a book deal. And uh, he talked to me about how he tried to commit, kill himself and commit suicide. And it got Jesus. very, very close, you know, where he'd actually put himself in his car. He'd put a rubber hose through the win- uh, window and he turned the engine on. And, um, you know, his, his dad found him and basically saved him. Now, I wouldn't name that guy because, you of know, course, yeah. he's, he's conquered those demons. You know, he's completely over us. He's, you know, living very, very healthy, you know, so for life now. So I just don't think it would do any good, you know, sort of name that. Some of the other stories in there, you know, more lighthearted ones, you know, so some of the drinking escapades in the early nineties. <laughs> that's all the, the kind of stuff that players talk about amongst themselves. Anyway, I don't think there's any harm in bringing them to a, a, a greater public. But to highlight, and, and again, it's in the book, but for you would you you'd go drinking with the players in in our pre-season you'd be mixing with them i mean you know i i was for example i was in the same hotel as the team in kenya for example pre-season and there was a little bit of mixing but, you know the idea that i'd be sitting up with them and they, they wouldn't be drinking of course but the idea that we'd be having a meal together it's just it's it's foreign concept i mean it's a different sport now of course i mean it's not that long ago to be fair i'm only talking 25 30 years but there was a drinking existed yeah. which you know so is largely being eradicated now you know so obviously players do go for a pint now but it's not quite you know so the same as it was back then but yeah that was a uh, that was just a given because you were the local reporter i mean that incident we're talking about uh, down in bournemouth we were playing portsmouth on the tuesday or the wednesday night in a league cup tie and in southampton on the saturday so it made sense for the team to stay down south you know rather than come back up and i thought well i heard that so it sense for me to split them. And, you know, the manager, I think my crew was a little bit, you know, I wouldn't say upset at, you know, sort of my presence there, but he was, he was willing to, you know, sort of endure me being there. And I knew a lot of the players anyway. So after played on Tuesday night, a few of them went into Bournemouth on a night out, a few stayed in the hotel, and I stayed with them. And so we had a few drinks, and, you know, the world was getting put to rights, and that was why I ended up with uh, Ian Snowden and uh, David Burroughs coming close. <laughs> I I remember, you know, so one, one of Duncan Ferguson's mates who was, uh, who was uh, Tommy, Tommy Griff, managed to, like, separate them and, you know, so hold them apart. And uh, the other players had heard what had happened, you know, not everybody was there that night. And I was um, having breakfast the following morning, and suddenly I was the most popular man in the hotel. They're all coming over. 
what went on last night? What went on? <laughs> and it was great, you know, so it was just like, so very, very entertaining. But yeah, it probably wouldn't happen that have people keeping you at arm's length of players. You wouldn't be allowed to even witness something like that. And players now probably wouldn't be letting their hair down having a few beers after the game. They'd no, probably be rehydrating and, you know, so going into cryopeacher. That's what they all do, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's what I do after every pitch five side. Yeah, and I don't want you to give away too much of, of, to the instance because obviously we, we, we people can get and uh, pick a copy of the book up. But is there a, is there a favourite story in there that you just couldn't wait to, to sort of commit to, to print almost? I don't know that there's lots in there that um, I really enjoy, but the, the one that I particularly liked was um, was Diamonds, you know, so my old mate Graham Stewart, who'd been, been bombed by Joe Royal um, early on. I mean, Diamond later came to be very, very, you know, so popular. But Spell just couldn't get a game. And yeah. he, was, uh, he wasn't even in the squad. And he was getting more and more frustrated. And uh, he rang me on a Thursday and just said, look, you know, so I've not been in the squad for however many weeks it was now. Do you want to go for a Do you want to go out? I said, yeah, come on, go for a pint. So we had a few pints locally, then went into Southport, uh, ended up in the, the, the Kingsway, which I don't even think the Kingsway exists anymore. Bumped into it. Vinnie Samways was in there, being bombed long by Joe Royal. And Peter Beering, he was a big pie, big diamonds. So we ended up staying there from quite late. But then went back to the Grapes in Formby, uh, where Colin, the landlord, had opened up for us to have a bit of a stay behind. So, you know, obviously Diamond's a lot younger than me. He's a much greater constitution. <laughs> had Peter Beagle, he was fast asleep in a Chesterfield chair in the corner. And uh, I said, right, look, you know, so I need to go home now. You know, so I've had enough. He goes, all right, mate, you know, so I'll speak to you, you know, in a couple of days. So I um, woke up on him by the town. And I'll never guess what's happened. So go on. He's named me in the squad for the game on Saturday. Everton are playing Blackburn, Blackburn champions elect. Yes. Oh, yeah. You're joking me. He goes, look, I, I need to get, you know, so go and run this system. So I agree. Uh, Man City was playing for Man City. They were playing Palace away the Saturday. This was Thursday night. So the Friday, uh, Diamond was training. I think Beagers had gone to Manchester City's training ground where he got the coach down to the London game of Crystal Palace. But Diamond had a little session. He'd um, gone to bed again, slept it off. The following day, what happens against Blackburn? He only scores an absolute worldie. <laughs> a little dink over Tim Flowers from 25 yards. Absolutely great goal. Beagers, on the other hand, was substituted at half time. <laughs> so, the moral of that story is. Everson footballers can take their eye better than Manchester City footballers and perform better afterwards. And, and any Everton player who's not in the team who lives in the uh, in the Formby region, give Preno a ring, go out on the on the last, <laughs> yeah. and, you'll be, and you'll be back in the team. <laughs> <laughs> if Ina only gets dropped and falls out of favour with Carlo, expect a phone call, Preno. Well, that's it. To be honest, I mean, you still see players occasionally, you know, so around Formby, but now. You know, it's like they might jog past during lockdown. You certainly see, you know, and it's quite funny actually because Formby Cricket Club around the corner here, uh, apparently he'd actually ran onto the field there and they've got like a, an artificial turf, an artificial mm. surface, and he was using that, uh, you know, so for some of his uh, sessions and what have you. And one of the committee members of Formby Cricket Club saw him on this pitch doing like shuttles and what have you went across and turfed him off. And a couple of the other members are saying, hang on, that's Jerry Miller. He's a World Cup footballer. He's a Premier League footballer. Can't you let him train on our cricket club? No, nope, wow. not having it. He's not training on our pitch. <laughs> but, you know, so you don't, you don't see them in pubs. You don't see them in restaurants anymore. They live in a huge mansion which have gay wall, you know, which is yeah. a shame. Um, 
and again, and I, and I don't want you to sort of um, give too much away in, in terms of what's in the book, but I know people, you know, this isn't a book, you know, just for people who enjoyed, oh, I say enjoyed inverted commas, it, it was up and down, wasn't it, in the 90s, and people who, oh, yeah. whilst you were really on the beat, you know, people for that generation, you know, this book is applicable for people of Adam's generation and younger, you know. So what was, you know, what was Moyes like? I, I like Moyes an awful lot. I've got an awful lot of time for him. Now, he's never going to be the life and soul of a party. You know, let, let's get that straight. I mean, he, he does have a pint, but, you know, he's a very intense, very, very serious individual who is, is, is his reason for living is to be a success as a football manager. But he's 100% honest. I mean, yeah. the number of managers I've spoken to that are to lies, that have <laughs> led me... And, Fucking manager I consider mates. I mean, Walter Smith, uh, when Nick Barnby was sold, um, I got a phone call at the office, you know, from somebody that worked at Bill Kenwright's organisation down in London. And uh, said that I've just, Bill, say, I've heard, you know, the, the, the six words I never thought I would hear in the English language. I want to play for Liverpool. And it, it just sounded, you know, true. It sounded right. So I rang Walter. I said, look, you know, I've just heard that, you know, Nick Barnby's going to Liverpool. No, absolute bollocks, absolute bollocks. I said, well, would you know in light of what happened with Ferguson? And, you know, can, you can imagine what his response was. You know, so, you know, so anyway, he was lying to me. Apparently he had, um, he later told me Steve Watson sat opposite him. He was trying to convince Steve Watson to sign for Everton. And if he'd have heard that Everton's best player was leaving to go to a Liverpool, he might right. have thought otherwise and didn't. So he misled me deliberately. Although subsequent Everton managers said that, well, he could have run you back afterwards and let you know, but he mm. didn't. Whereas Moyes would never, ever do that. If you asked him about a transfer story, he would tell you the truth. I mean, Franny Jeffers, one of Franny's mates, rang me once and said that, look, you know, they're trying to bring Franny back. Um, this was in 2001, I think it was. So, 2000, so uh, I, I rang Moyes said, look, I've heard, you know, you might be interested in bringing Franny Jeffers back. He's like, oh, my God, how do you know about that? He says, I haven't met him yet. We're going to go and meet him tomorrow before the game against Arsenal. Uh, you know, don't write anything, please, because, you know, we've not even had a conversation. Because he was so honest with me, I had to be honest. Okay, if I write anything, but, you know, if anything comes of it, please let me know and we'll carry a story. Obviously, something did come of it, you know, so, and we got that story. But he was he was absolutely honest, you know, so to the nth degree. And he was available as we would always on the end of the phone. And yes, for more than, you know, so in journalism, if a manager yeah. is prepared to make himself available and be honest with you, you know, you've yeah. got the job cracked, to be honest. I mean, nowadays, A, getting hold of a manager's phone number is tough enough. So, uh, yeah, I've got a lot of time for David Moyes. And I wouldn't say we keep in touch. But, you know, so we have occasional correspondences, either via text or equally. Uh, I think West Ham are playing them quite soon. And I sat That's next right. to him for the first yeah. half before I obviously bored him to see us and he went and sat somewhere else in the second <laughs> half. <laughs> but, no, well, I remember, Preno, when we went, to, uh, we went to West Ham for the fated last game of Sam Allardyce's tenure, didn't we? And yeah. uh, we, I remember us being in the press conference room for that game when Moyes was... Know, in his first tenure at West Ham, and first yeah. thing he said just before he sat down was, "Hello, Preno." So he, <laughs> he seems he seems like he's got a good rapport with you. And I was great in a pre-season tours uh, when we went to Austria. Um, he actually invited me along to actually because they did. Um, he took the players for an early morning swim first of all in like some cold lake or something. It was like a wake up for them to swim in a lake, and then they'd go on a very very slow run. Be very he said to me, "Do you want to join us? You know, so you can like run at the, at the back." So I did, you know, so me and him were at the back while the players were just jogging very, very slowly at the front. And it's just a way of him involving me, I suppose, because when you're on season tour, you know, and you're on the list there, 
you can be a little bit isolated at times, a little bit, you know, so left to your own devices. So I appreciated that. But also the players see you, you know, being involved in that respect and you become a little bit more embarrassed by them. They see you as being a threat, but being, you know, a little bit part of the media team at the football club. I mean, obviously that's changed significantly now because the football club, you know, the media team at Everton Football Club now probably numbers, you know, sort of 450 strong. Whereas, you know, then it was probably a press office and that was it. So, no, it, it was good. You know, so I, I do have an awful lot of time for David Moyes. But I was allowed to build that relationship and that rapport with him. Subsequent managers, I wasn't. You know, so, I mean, Roberto Martinez, my role had changed by then. I became board strong then. Uh, and then deputy sports editor. So I wasn't going down to the training ground as often. Uh, but equally, you know, the guys that followed me, um, you know, so didn't get anything like the same level of access. And so I allowed to build that for I mean, yourself have got a great role with some, you know, very, very uh, senior figures at the football club, but you've had to work very hard uh, to make the, those relationships. Um, it was largely gifted to me. So lots of, you know, predecessors came before. Okay. Um, so just before we wrap up, Prenna, this is where you have to uh, go all uh, the apprentice, Alan Sugar, and, 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 <laughs> and, and tell everybody that it's, it's selling like a hotcake and how you can still get a copy, where you can get a copy, and why it's the ideal Christmas present. Right, well, I don't know what the, the sales figures are like at the moment, but a very, very positive uh, suggestion uh, to Waterstones and Liverpool Centre to, to sign, because obviously the world that we live in now, we can't do a launch, it's very difficult to actually do signed copies. So I said, yeah, I'll go in and I'll, uh, I'll sign whatever you want me to. So I went in, uh, the girl greeted me, Becky, said, well, I've got uh, some bad news. I said, oh, go on. Well, the good news, sorry, the bad news is we've only got 10 copies. I said, all oh, right, okay. But the good news is that's because we've sold all the others. I think mm -hmm. I don't know how many they got, 50 odd sold, and they're going to get 150 odd next week. So I said, oh, well, that suggests like it's selling very well. That's good news. And she goes, oh, yeah, the last couple of days it started to really sell very, very quickly. So I'm pleased with that. It's had a positive reaction on social media. Um, uh, did a review, which was very positive. Um, so yeah, I'm pleased with all that. Uh, but yeah, it's you know, still available. And uh, what do they say? All good bookshops. You can yeah. buy it online. But if you want a tip, uh, the Reach Sport Bookstore has got a slot for them. I think it's four cent. Quite hard lasts. Don't know. So the actual fourteen ninety nine hardback price in the shops, you can get it for eight ninety nine on the Reach uh, Bookstore which is an absolute bargain, I would suggest. It is, um, yes. Yeah, you know, it's available there, you know, online, all bookstores, wherever you want to buy it. And if you want a signed copy, uh, Waterstones and Liverpool City Centre are going to invite me back in to sign whatever copies they've got there. If anybody wants signed messages, just leave a message with them and I'll put on it whatever you want to. You know, for a Christmas gift or you want to take the mickey out of somebody, you know, so I'll, <laughs> I'll write them there whatever you wish. So, uh, that, that's my sales pitch. <laughs> Brilliant know. and uh, a good one as well. Excellent. Well, Prano, thank you uh, very much for sharing your insight into the, uh, to the book. Grand old team to report available now. And uh, this has been the Royal Blue Podcast. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.